Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Electric Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. podcast is coming to you from the Evergreen Brickworks in Toronto on this November 7th, 2018, where ULI Toronto is hosting its Symposium on Toronto Urbanism. And to kick off today's event, the Symposium was very fortunate to have Professor Richard Florida give the keynote presentation. For those in the city building profession, Professor Florida needs little introduction. But for those who aren't as familiar, he is an internationally recognized urbanist, who grew up, studied, and taught in the United States, and later moved to Toronto with his wife, Rana, 11 years ago to become director of the Martin Prosperity Institute and professor of business and creativity at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. He's also a distinguished fellow at New York University's Shack Institute of Real Estate and a visiting fellow at Florida International University. Professor Florida's research provides unique, data-driven insight into the social, economic, and demographic factors that drive the 21st century world economy. He's written several global bestsellers, including the award-winning The Rise of the Creative Class and The New Urban Crisis, published just last year. He serves as senior editor for The Atlantic, where he co-founded and serves as editor-at-large for CityLab. And he's also founder of the Creative Class Group, which works closely with companies and governments worldwide. So with that introduction, and to get in some of the themes raised in his keynote presentation about Toronto urbanism, I'm so very delighted to have Richard speak with me today. So Richard, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here with you in, in what is literally my backyard. You know, when, we, when Ron and I bought our house here, um, we didn't know the city very. I mean, I knew the downtown area. I knew the area around the university. That's where I'd gone. And so when we were looking at houses, a good friend of ours who lived in Toronto said, you'll like this house. Neighborhood's nice, but literally the ravine's your backyard and you're above what would become at that point evergreen brickworks. And, and literally, before we had kids, we'd walk in these ravines every day. Now that we have kids, we usually come here every weekend for the market that's open on Saturday. So it's nice to be doing a podcast from my, literally what is my backyard. And me too. I grew up not far from here, and I'm going to get into that later. But I used to walk the ravines from Moore Park down and come to the brickworks and see it's in, in action. And it is remarkable to see the transformation. The last time I saw you in person was when you gave the keynote presentation at the previous ULI Toronto Symposium about a year and a half ago. And, you know, one of the things that impressed me with your presentation both today and at your last symposium was not just your depth of ideas and opinions, but in your presentation style. And, you know, I, I think there are very few in this industry, academics and professionals alike, who can get up in front of an audience with no speaking notes, although I, I noticed you had some speaking notes, but I don't think you really referred to them, no lectern, no PowerPoint presentation, and just talk nonstop for about 45 minutes to a large audience like the one gathered here today. I think it's a unique skill, and it works very well as you seem to capture everyone's attention from beginning to end. And I could tell because not a single person was checking their smartphones. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. Have you always presented this way, or is it something you've cultivated over time? No. Um, so... The really interesting thing is there's a lot of things I've tried to do in my life and really practice hard at. So um, 
I've really practiced hard to be a writer. And I, I would say I'm just an okay writer. I mean, I'm a, you know, it's, it's something I'm, but I'm not Malcolm Gladwell or uh, a, another great nonfiction writer. Um, I tried to be a guitar player, you know, and I'm a good guitar player. I'm a good rock and blues guitar player, but I'm certainly no Aaron Clapton or Jimi Hendrix. The only thing in my life that I really never practiced is public speaking. And I think partly being a musician helped, you know, so playing in bands all my life. But what happened was when Rise of the Creative Class became a bestseller, um, you can see here, you listening in Canada, I have, I have 10 pages of speaking notes here. I used to make detailed speaking notes for every speech, and, and, and I still do. We'll come back to that. I used to read them. And then I realized I simply couldn't do it anymore. There were just so many demands for public speaking at that time. Um, so I decided one day to put them away and just kind of talk from my heart. And people liked it. So what I do now is I develop my speaking notes in advance. Um, I have them on my phone on my Google Drive. I, in developing them, I learn the material. I write them down, I type them down, not handwrite them down. And then I look at them. Today, actually, to be honest, I thought of using the notes because it's, it's to talk about Toronto and its future and its assets. It's a very specific subject. But then at the last minute, as you, you saw, I put them down on the lectern because they were in my head. I had I'd written them, I had thought about them, I had reviewed them. So that's the way I do it. And I have found, you know, in giving public speeches, people don't usually remember numbers. Uh, this is a, for all you aspiring public speakers. They remember stories. So when I tell stories about my dad or my mom or growing up in New Jersey or experiencing the first original urban crisis in Newark or watching Rob Ford rise to the mayoralty in Toronto and how that changed my way of thinking mm -hmm. or looking at Pittsburgh struggles when I lived there of the towns I've lived in, that's what people remember. So I think really good public speaking is a mix of big ideas, a mix of interesting data, but also a kind of telling of stories. So, yeah, and it's just experience. You know, now I've done it a lot, so I've gotten experience. And you seem very comfortable um, doing it. Now, <laughs> I mentioned in my introduction I'm that... Not, but I seem that way. <laughs> I mentioned in my introduction that you moved to Toronto about 11 years ago, and in some ways, you're following in the footsteps of another internationally recognized urbanist who also moved to Toronto from the United States. And I'm talking, of course, about the late Jane Jacobs, admired worldwide for her astute observations about urbanity and urban planning, most notably in her influential book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. So I'm curious, what is it about Toronto that drew you here? And what are the parallels you see between you and the late Jane Jacobs? I think the reasons we came here are very different. I mean, Jane came here principally to, you know, make sure her kids weren't drafted in the Vietnam War. Um, you know, she wanted them, and, and I would do the same, you know. Um, I came here because there was a great opportunity at the Martin Prosperity Institute that would fund my research. And in fact, I talked to Jane, I got to know Jane late in life. A woman named Mary Rowe, who's now back in Toronto, uh, she's going to run a project right in the Evergreen Brickworks on future cities or be part of a project. Mary introduced me to, to Jane. Um, and, and so, you know, I got to know her and she, Jane was like, why would you want to go to a university? They're horrifying. Like, they're <laughs> terrible. Like, I, I saw what they do to them. When I met those people, not at the University of Toronto, she was talking about people she met at Harvard and MIT years ago. So we're very different. I think I, I when, when, and Jane's a much more important, you know, I'm, I'm carrying on, many of us, myself at Glazer, we can go on, or carrying on the work that Jane laid the foundation for. But I think I do understand her slightly differently than most people. And that's because, in part, we got to know each other well. When I moved to Toronto, actually before I moved to Toronto, 
when I was thinking about moving to Toronto and Jane was living here. And we did, you know, I talked about this today. We actually did a speech together, which for, unfortunately no one took video of and no one audio taped. We actually did a conversation at the distillery district when it was opening. Um, I think it was billed as something like lunch with Dick and Jane, which I thought was hysterical. <laughs> um, but anyway, what Jane said to me is, I asked her like what she thought was her most important contribution. And she said, many people think that the stuff I did in urban activism or the stuff I did talking about the neighborhoods in, in death and life of the great American cities or the idea of sidewalk configuration. She said, I think, it, I think I came up with a more fundamental insight. And this was in her book, The Economy of Cities, that I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Most economists before her, me, she said, had thought about companies as the logic and, and, and axis of economic growth. And she said, well, that's really an argument about efficiency and specialization. That's what companies do. Cities are the ones that bring together diverse groups of people and ideas and kind of smush them together. And it's cities that create new ideas and innovation. The way I think about that is that the city has become the platform for knowledge generation and idea generation and startup. So I think that's the kind of work that I'm carrying on. And in my work, I try to marry – sorry to be so wonky, folks – um, there's a great tradition of people trying to understand the nature of capitalism and innovation and economic growth. And that would include people like Joseph Schumpeter and Karl Marx on, on, on that hand. But most of the people who do that talk about companies and classes. Jane Jacobs kind of adds to that by saying, no, the platform for innovation and economic growth is a city. So I've really tried to marry, if you think, jo Joseph Schumpeter's theories of innovation with Jane Jacobs' theories of cities and urbanism. And I think that's become kind of my life's work. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm happy to follow on in that tradition, but I think Jane's the one who deserves the credit. And just in your interest in coming to Toronto, um, uh, is it, was it the university or is there, was there more to it? Oh, that's a great question. So I would think looking back at 11 years ago, my wife Ron and I had a great life in Washington, D.C. I was working with The Atlantic. I was working at Brookings. had a university appointment there. I think there were three things. One, I think I saw the hand – now, my colleague Jeffrey Hinton, who's the leading AI, artificial intelligence scholar in the world, saw this uh, 20 years before me. I saw the handwriting in the wall that the U.S. was becoming more divided. Uh, and that it was surging rightward, um, even under W. Bush. I, I did not foresee the rise of Trump. So I thought it would be interesting to go to Canada and live in Toronto, which in my mind seemed like a more progressive and multicultural place. Of course, once I got here, Rob Ford got elected. So that was a big wake up call for me. But I, I think that was in my mind. Secondly, um, the university had a great opportunity. Um, it is a great urban-oriented university. There was money to support my research that, that a guy named Joe Rotman gave, who was the funder of the Rotman School. There was a great institute. And now, you know, out of that, we've built the world's first school of cities. So that's pretty cool. Uh, it's also close to my wife's family. My wife is from Michigan, from the Detroit area. And that's now a three-and-a-half to four-hour drive. And um, I think the best thing about it was, one, coming to Canada was smart. Coming to Toronto was smart. I got to learn a lot about the difference between Canada and the United States. In particular, I got to learn more about America, looking at it through Canadian eyes. Both my girls were born here, so both my girls are dual citizens, which is, I think, a huge thing to give them. Um, and I think Toronto is a great place to raise kids. Um, it, it's also, for me, become a great laboratory to understand kind of the new urban crisis because Toronto's at the epicenter yeah, of it, right? So right. I think it's been a good move. Um, and, you know, the university's good. We're top 20 now in the world. 
top 10 public and the airport of go- airport's good. So <laughs> I got no complaints. Well, you mentioned a um, good place to raise kids, and this is going to be my next question. You know, Toronto is my hometown, and I mentioned that earlier. I've lived here most of my life. I grew up here in the 1970s in the time when the city was definitely more akin to middle-class living. And, you know, granted it wasn't as hip or as uh, diverse or as energetic, but it was, a, it, was a, it was a pretty good place to live. So many of the great cultural and tourist attractions were built in the 70s, partic- particularly ones that appealed to kids like Ontario Place, the Science Centre, the Toronto Zoo, the CN Tower, even the Toronto Blue Jays um, uh, came to life in, in the 1970s. And all these new additions were a tremendous boost to the city, reflecting an emerging confidence that the, the city had in itself and in its future. It was also much easier to get around. The TTC truly was the better way. And Toronto prided itself as a city that works with its two-tier level of governance. So here's my question. Was Toronto a better place to live back in the 70s, or is it a better place now? Well, it's probably a better place to live back in the 70s, but in many ways, it's a better place now. And I think, I mean, look, two things happened to Toronto, which are not necessarily Toronto's fault. One is the urban hierarchy began to consolidate everywhere in the world. And these main cities or superstar cities just began to draw in more population. So it's not just that Montreal dealt with separatism. Mm-hmm. It, and, and, you know, this could have been predicted even without separatism. The same thing happened with regard to Boston and Washington versus New York. Toronto became the main city in a big country. And, you know, it's a fifth of the Canadian economy. And it attracts people from not just the Toronto region, but all over the country. Come to Toronto for to work in banks and financial institutions mm-hmm. and great real estate companies and great media industry and technology industries and great universities. The other thing that happened is Canada opened its door to immigrants. And, you know, we're taking in, what, 100,000-plus immigrants a year? Yeah. So those two things, that Toronto became an engine of a, of a national economy and a global city at the same time, and then an axis of immigration made the city more crowded, and yeah, so, so I think it's a more exciting city. In my own view is that Toronto is actually still a better place to raise a family than if uh, its family quotient is still better than its hipness quotient. I'm not trying to say okay. its hipness quotient has gone up, but it still seems to me what distinguishes Toronto from New York or San Francisco or Boston is that you can, it's expensive. We can hold that point. Sure. But you still can raise a family here. The schools are funded in a way that enables the public schools and even the parochial schools to provide neighborhood. That doesn't exist. In the United States, we have a barbell. When you, unless you're super rich. I mean, incredibly, fabulously rich and can afford these unbelievably expensive private schools. When, you, when your kids get to elementary school age, you go to the suburbs. So in the United States, the cities are the young and the hip and the old and the rich. Um, here... We still have kids in this city and not just rich people's kids. You know, we have service workers' kids being raised. You get in an Uber in this city and you ask our cab and you ask your Uber driver, your cab driver about their kids. They will tell you their kids are in XYZ University. They're in Ryerson or OCAD or the University of Toronto or York. That doesn't happen as much in the United States. So I still and it's safe. Kids still still can walk. I can tell so many stories about kids walking or taking transit, which doesn't happen in the United States. And yeah, maybe some of these amenities have gotten older, but there's still great amenities for kids. So I think actually if I had to rate Toronto, it's a better place to raise a family than experience the restaurant or nightlife scene, mm-hmm. although those things have improved. So 
Yeah, I, I think the only problem is that it's become expensive. And, and the expensive part is really housing. It's not the other day-to-day -day things. The expensive part is it's just expensive to rent or buy a home here. So with housing being a real problem, and, and you've said it many times, it may be the biggest crisis uh, our city faces. Um, the road congestion you mentioned earlier today in your presentation, um, the worst in North America. Um, transit is uh, woefully underfunded and certainly um, is not working the way it should. Um, is Toronto at the breaking point? Um, and yes. if so, are we at the beginning of its decline as more and more people decide to settle or relocate to other cities? Um, and perhaps that's a good thing for other cities, injecting new life into places like Hamilton and London and, and elsewhere. I don't think, I think we're at the brink. I don't think we're in decline. I think we're still growing. I think we're growing very unevenly, that the 40% of us who are members of the knowledge, professional, and creative class are doing pretty well. And, you know, I mean, I hate to say this selfishly, but my house was double the cost of our house in Washington, D.C., and pushed us to the financial brink. It's still the best investment we've ever made. Mm -hmm. So if you could get into the market, you know what I'm saying, at any level, you've been on an escalator. Yeah. Those who can't get into the market are left behind. Um, so I still think for the 40% of us, it's the, it, the problem is the 60% of us who are not members of that knowledge, professional, and creative class being pushed ever further to the periphery, long, enduring longer commutes, maybe can't save up enough, don't have enough income to buy a home. But I, I'm optimistic. I, I think that we are one of the places, along with perhaps Los Angeles, I think is another very aspirational city in North America. You know, New York and London have shown that they can, Shanghai and Beijing have shown that they can get big in scale. Toronto and L.A. are the cities, L.A. is bigger than us, maybe Chicago too, that have reached a point where we're either going to have to in invent a new growth model around transit and rail and density and even high-speed rail out to the periphery, or we won't. We'll become more congested and more unaffordable. But I'm kind of optimistic. I, I, I do understand the divide we have, and, you know, I think the divide What's interesting about the divide here is it's not racial or ethnic the way it is in the United States. I mean, you could say the Trump thing in the United States is it's like a white restorationist movement. It's white nationalism. It's terrifying. Here, we have a backlash with populism that's different. So on the one hand, I, I would say what's worrying to me, we are the one jurisdiction, if we take Toronto and Ontario, that look to me to be progressive. That's like comparable to New York and New York City and New York Boston and Massachusetts, LA and San Francisco and California. So we elected a populist mayor and then should have having learned our lesson, mm -hmm. elected a populist uh, premier or governor. Like that would be like New York electing a populist mayor and then the state of New York. So, so I'm worried about that. But I think the reason for that is the divide over the way we want to live. There's still a lot of new Canadians who come here who want a suburban home, who want to drive a car. They want to live what they perceive as the Canadian dream, not be stuck in a little apartment in a train, which is what they escaped from. Mm -hmm. So what I think we have to do, what I think we have to do is no longer articulate a narrative, which is we want an urban transit den place versus a suburban, uh, you know, less dense car place that by investing in transit, investing in rail, investing in density where it works, those who want to have a suburban home, those who would like to have a car, can have that opportunity. Uh, they're going to have to pay to use the roads. They're going to have to pay to use the car. But I think we have to make a more inclusive narrative, not only based on ethnic, and which we've done very well, actually, the mosaic of ethnicities and nationalities and races. I think we have to build a new inclusive narrative that says if you're an urbanite or a suburbanite, 
we can all coexist here. And I think that's really where you have to get. And, and I'm, I'm worried. I'm, I'm honestly worried. Because you also so, said you were optimistic. Yeah, but I am optimistic. At the end, of, what else? Who else is going to solve this? You know, I, I do think New York is going to step up. I do think L.A. is going to step up. And I think Toronto is going to step up. So, so it, it's going to have to be big, interesting cities that step up. And I do think Toronto, believe it or not, has the resources. We seem resource constrained because we do that to ourselves. But I think Toronto can make this leap from a, from a, from a modest-sized, second-tier national city to a real global city that can scale, you know, 10, 15 million and beyond. That's going to take some time. But you don't think that when you hear stories and, and even your own students who are saying, you know, I, I can't afford to to buy a house in this city. I want to work in the city. Some of them are, are turning down job offers at universities in Toronto to move elsewhere. Um, is that That is my concern, is that we're going to start to see um, a decline of talent, perhaps. Maybe. And... Um, uh, the inability for those in maybe the middle class sector uh, further and further uh, stretched uh, and, and unable to live in the, the city. The way I see it is a little different. I mean, when, when I taught at Carnegie Mellon, 90% of my students wanted to leave Pittsburgh. My faculty colleagues were going and taking jobs with Apple in San Francisco and Microsoft in Seattle. Still 95 to 98% of the students I come in, I mean, I survey them every year, want to stay in Toronto. I mean, our worry is maybe reverse. Our worry is how many of our students want to stay in Toronto when there's not enough jobs for all of them. I think most of them are making this trade-off. Whether, whether it's a great trade-off to have to make, they're saying, I would rather stay in an urban neighborhood or neighborhood close to urbanity in Toronto and live in a, this is a 1,200-square-foot condominium than, than go move somewhere else and live in a big home. Not that they're a 1,200-square-foot condominium in Toronto is a pretty nice way to live. I think we're going to get used to living more like New Yorkers. I think that's what's good, or Londoners, or Hong Kongers, where we decide, you know, it's it's great to be in a city with amenity, with offering, with with a low crime. I think the, that the place that Toronto still loses talent to, believe it or not, is big global cities. I, I still see somehow the best and the brightest going to New York, or London in finance, or Hong Kong, or LA, or San, I mean, we have a big diaspora of people in all of those places who are top level. You know, maybe, maybe, and I hate to use this, Drake is so important in this sense, mm -hmm. that Drake said, you know, I can build a world-class music thing here. I don't have to go to LA to do it. I don't have to go to New York to do it. And in that way, put his hand up and said, you know, we can do a lot of things here. So I think that's really the key for Toronto. How do we then build world-class industries here? Uh, and I think we've shown we can do it in film and music already. Technology, we maybe. Real estate, yes. Um, I worry more about if the privileged third of us, I worry about the San, not even the Manhattanization of Toronto, the San Franciscanization, where a city just becomes a city of elite. All of the low-income people get pushed so far out that, that San Francisco just looks like a yuppie yeah. knowledge creative class. That's what I worry about right. with Toronto. A colonization by the upper class, the creative class. But I don't think they're going to be pushed out. I think the ones that get pushed out are the people less advantaged. And that wouldn't be – that's what Jane Jacobs said to me You know, when I asked her. She said, you know, Richard, when a place gets boring, even the rich people leave. When you lose that fabric of multiculturalism, of ethnic diversity, of class diversity, the place becomes boring. So what are some of those cities like San Francisco or Seattle uh, or New York, what are they doing to deal with affordability? Uh, I think San Francisco is the one that's at the real brink now. I think New York is different because New York is so big. 
you know, if you get pushed out of the lower east, if you get pushed out of Upper East Side or Upper West Side, or you can't afford to live in Tribeca, you can go to Brooklyn. If Brooklyn gets too expensive, you can go to Queens. If Queens gets too expensive, you can go to Jersey City. If Jersey City gets too expensive, you can go to Newark. And the transit system allows a young person, if they want, to buy a home, I mean, for a fraction. You know, you can live in a nice New Jersey or Connecticut suburb for a fraction of what you live in a Toronto single-family detached home. San Francisco is the one because it's small. It, 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 you know, it, it doesn't have a lot of room to expand. The traffic is so congested. Uh, they're the one that, that is really at the, at the point. And I would maybe Seattle. The, these are the cities now when you look at housing prices that are comparable to Toronto. The New York metro is much more affordable. I know most Toronto, the New York metropolitan area, not, New, not Manhattan, is much more affordable than the GTA. Mm-hmm. Uh, much, much, much more affordable than the GTA. So it would be more like San Francisco or Los Angeles or Seattle or maybe London even though London's more affordable, less affordable than us, that are comps. Look, we, we've got to invest, build, we've got to build more, but I have to give Toronto credit. We are a building city. We are building a lot of towers. I mean, I think we still have more cranes in the sky than New York and San Francisco and L.A. combined. But we've got to focus on affordable. One of the things we've done is built, and we built for maybe the mid-end and luxury markets, um, making our lands available, our publicly owned land, maybe making some of the employment lands, which were there for a reason, housing, you know, housing lands, if you will, um, investing in new kinds of technologies, construction technologies, working with companies like the Sidewalk Labs and others that are growing up in this environment. We've, sta- we've created a new, uh, in our Creative Destruction Lab, our accelerator at University of Technology, which was working on our artificial intelligence and cryptocurrency and software. We've now created a city stream uh, to work on this set of technologies that are about making cities more efficient and function better, um, learning to live smaller, learn better public. I think the other thing is better public spaces as we're as we are living more vertically. Um, parks really matter, and we do have great parks. But you know, this is really interesting. We we underinvest in our parks. Such a minor point, but you, you talk to people in New York or London about what's great about those cities. Yeah, I live in a small flat, but the parks are great. Yeah. Our parks are good, and in a neighborhood like this one, the parks are good, but we, we, we have a lot of concrete neighborhoods. Um, so investing in, in public spaces, and, you know, people raising kids, I hate to say this, you get bored in your backyard. <laughs> and in Toronto, I, even I have a very small backyard, the park becomes the neighborhood public space convening van. So thinking about that way, building more vertical city, a city that's tied together in transit, pricing our roads, making sure that we're not subsidizing drivers, um, being vigilant about how we grow and scale, I think we can do it. I, so I think we've got to get to it. Do you think that we then are on the on the, the pioneer uh, edge yeah. as all these other cities in the United States are grappling with similar issues? Do you think yes, Toronto we, is... we, L.A., San Francisco, I think, is in a tougher spot. Maybe Miami in its own craziness. I think we are... The cities that are 6, 7, 10 to 15 million people like L.A., metropolitan areas, they're on the knife's edge. And you look and you go, okay, what do you need to make it? You need a strong economy. You need good banks. You know, you need a strong real estate sector. You need jobs for people. Um, you need a great airport, a big one. We have a spectacular airport and a good island airport. You need great world-class universities. The University of Toronto is now 20th in the world, 10th among publics, and other York and Ryerson and OCAD. So you go, well... LA is sort of like that. It has several great universities, but the airport's kind of a mess. Chicago is much more violent. Miami it has a lot of influx of immigration, but the university quality is less. It has a great airport, though. 
Toronto has a mixture of things that positions it. You know, and my kind of thing, I, my thinking is with the University of Toronto School of Cities, um, with the urban tech cluster that we've built, um, with the strong real estate industry, with the fact that Sidewalk Labs, when you talk about this, chose Toronto to become a place that would synthesize these urban technologies. If we can make that all work, we can become the world leading place in how a technology-enabled city, not a smart city, how a city that is built around great neighborhoods and functional neighborhoods and transit, but how it uses construction technology, how it uses new technology. This area of urban tech is the largest area of startups in history. You know, uh, Airbnb and Uber and Lyft, and we can go on, have the largest valuations in all of WeWork. If we can become kind of a laboratory for this, take all of the things I talked about and build, you know, we talked about building a cluster. Silicon Valley has software and biotech. You know, this one has that, this and the other thing. If we could build a cluster on real estate city building technology and, and position ourselves there and use the technology to support our, inf our, our living environment and our communities, I think that's a thread we could pull um, to, be, to become a better, more functional place. But yeah, we've got a lot of issues to deal with. And a lot of those issues depend on good leadership. And I, you talked about this in your presentation today. And for leadership, I mean, the, the obvious thinking is that we have three levels of government, um, municipal, provincial, and federal. And I, I just wanted to get your perspective. Do you think we have the right leadership in place at this point in time to make a difference? No. I think that's been the, we've been inert for a decade, and, and that worries me. You know, for folks listening in, Jane Jacobs gave a series of lectures in the 1970s for the CBC on Quebec separatism. You know, she was pro-separatism. I'm going to write something about this because it's the part of Jane no one knows about. And she said the reason she was pro-separatism is because the people of Quebec and Montreal knew what was best for them. And subsidiarity, giving decision-making power to the local level was key. Now, she said this more eloquently to me. I think one thing that we have to know that is that we have, a federal, we have a vertical separation of powers, a federalism. The U.S. has its own kind. We have our own kind. We have a federal government, or a national government, a provincial government, and local governments. I think we, in our Articles of Confederation and then dealing with separatism, understood that we can enable and coexist with difference if our provinces have a lot of power. One big difference between Canada and the United States is the provinces are really the seat of power, not the federal government but our cities are horrifically weak. You know, so I'm working with Alan Broadbent and the National Urban Project in Canada to try to realign that. I mean, we're working with the federal government, with uh, premiers and provincial leaders across the country, and with city leaders and mayors to say, how can we readjust our federalism? How do we download and devolve power to the local? I think the new wrinkle we have here is Premier Ford, and Premier Ford, for a bunch of reasons, thinking he's also mayor, mm -hmm. and, and kind of trying to preempt power. But even that, I think we could still envision a thing where the city gets more power, where Mayor Tory can use the smaller council to say, look, we actually are like a mini province. Give us more power. And that can happen throughout the country and, and it can happen here. I think the other part of our leadership issue is that we, we have this horrible separation of the public and private sector. And, and it's really hamstrung our ability to build these public-private partnerships. And let me use the example of the U.S., how is the U.S. economy running at record low unemployment and record levels of economic growth with Donald Trump in office? The most dysfunctional leader in modern memory, not just in the U.S., anywhere. 
It's because in many ways the federal government doesn't matter. What the U.S. figured out is that these public-private partnerships built around university, industry, business, philanthropy. I was just in Detroit. The city was bankrupt. Local philanthropy, local business began to just help rebuild that city. Now, people can complain and say that's not democratic and they're right. We have to build more democratic mechanisms. But you look at the U.S. and it was rebuilt by Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Indianapolis, Columbus, Pittsburgh, Newark, Detroit on this unique ability to morph these public-private partnerships. We have a harder time with that. And you see what's happened with even the one company we're building, Sidewalk Labs, on the waterfront. We can deal with privacy issues. We can deal with data. We can build a civic data trust. But we need a public-private partnership that works in a way that the private sector invests and the public feels protected. So I think it's not just the vertical separation of powers. We have to learn how to better mix public and private sector. That's hard for us as Canadians because we've always used government as protecting ourselves from the private sector, from the abuses. And the private sector, realizing that, has backed off. I think now we have to figure out, and I don't think this, this, this innovation in governance, new mechanisms of government. So yes, more power to the local. You're not going to deal with transit on a local level. It's going to have to be a regional private-public partnership. You're not going to deal with infrastructure building just with a strong city government. You're not even going to deal with regional parks, never mind these hard issues of how do you build technology-enabled cities. All of that is going to require these new mechanisms of public-private partnership. We need to take that proverbial bull by the horns and say, we're going to do this in a way that does it right. You know, We're not going to let the private sector bully us. But we're not going to say the public sector and private sector are at odds. We're going to blend these two in a unique way. So I think, yeah. And I, but one of the things is that we're doing, we're thinking about it. At the School of Cities at the University of Toronto, we're making governance one of our priorities. We do have a national urban project. They don't have that in the United States. We have some opportunities to think about this. But I actually believe, to be honest, this governance piece, this innovative governance piece, what is the right split of powers between feds, provincial and local? How do you build regional, strong regional governments? And how do you mix public and private sector? That is the key question of, of our time. No one has that right. Mm -hmm. Can we develop some opportunities and mechanisms for us to get it better? And really, look, we're not going to solve these problems de novo. But we could make Toronto a laboratory, a living laboratory for experimenting. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't work, we stop it and go another direction. But we have to give ourselves the liberty to say we're going to literally use our city as an as an ex exploratory laboratory to see what works and what doesn't. And <clears throat> the energy seems to be there. Um, you talked a little bit about that in your presentation this morning about really relying on all the talent uh, amongst industry professionals to really step up and take that leadership view. I want to. I just want to end up. Um, on one final theme, and this is a very topical. Today is November 7th, the day after the midterms. And the day after, I'm, I'm hearing rumors about the Amazon RFP. And that, uh, and Toronto was one of the 20 finalists. Rumors that the winning city or cities um, have been, uh, or are close to being announced, and that the two cities, it's going to be a split between two cities, one in the D.C. area and one in the New York area. Um, what do you think of, of that, what you're hearing, and, and what are your thoughts as it relates to Toronto? So I, I have lots of thoughts. Um, one, I think this is both a surprise and entirely predictable. Um, I've always said that the Amazon HQ2 was not about pinging a single site. It was Amazon crowdsourcing information from 200 plus communities across North America, including our own Toronto, 
um, to develop a site selection database, which was the best in the world, because Amazon is citing logistics, distribution, knowledge hubs, tech hubs, office facilities at a rate no other company has. It's one of the world. It's this world's second trillion dollar company. Um, for to my mind, Washington D.C. was always the place. I predicted this on the day they announced it. Um, it's it's a seat of government. It enables them to be close, Bezos to be close to his Washington Post. Um, it's a way of providing a lot of jobs in an area that would be the area that would undertake antitrust hearings. Um, not saying that would control the centers and congressmen, but if you have 20, 30,000, 50,000 people working there, it's a big thing. That Bezos is a big guy if, in the business community, and if he goes to Washington, which doesn't have superstar companies like his, um, and he has a $23 million house there, which, which, which is a giveaway. Um, other people said New York. New York is a, obviously the center of global finance and industry. I put it very high up on my list, in my short list. I didn't put it close to Washington. But it makes sense to break this up. You put the global headquarters function, the finance, the management, the high-level business and media advertising stuff in New York. You put the tech stuff and the stuff related to government agencies and the talent stuff in D.C. And they're part of a mega region. You know, this mega region, New York, Boston, Washington, Carter, is the biggest one in the world. It's 50 million people. It's $2 trillion in economic output. And you can get between New York and D.C. very quickly on the Acela Fast Rail or on, you know, half-an-hour shuttles. I, I was a member of the Toronto Global Board that wrote our proposal. I since resigned. I think, by the way, I think the Toronto proposal to Amazon is the single best one. Mm -hmm. It's the one that didn't provide gross financial incentives. Uh, it's the one that we made transparent while the U.S. hid, the cities hid theirs. Why I resigned is because I was really leveling a complaint with U.S. mayors to say, do it Toronto's way. Um, Toronto did it the right way. Don't give these handouts and don't hide behind non-disclosure agreements. The reason I resigned is because I didn't want my outspokenness to hurt Toronto's ability to compete for that bid, saying, you've got the guy who's complaining about us. So I just, I just told my colleagues on the board I'd resign, taking my onus. But I, I, by the way, I think Amazon did this exactly right. The people I was pointing the finger at was the U.S. mayors, particularly progressive mayors who are my friends, who are giving these handouts. Here's what I think. I've said this from day one. We got the better project. This is what Toronto doesn't understand. Sidewalk Labs is the, if in the city building space, Sidewalk Labs is the better project. Why do I say this? Because Sidewalk Labs, a Google affiliate, a high tech company, and, 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 and potentially could bring a very large Google installation to Toronto, it's the experimental laboratory for building the city and urban technology of the future. Yes, the privacy concerns are paramount. We're going to have to solve those in a way that everyone's comfortable with. But the, that's why they, they haven't figured it out. It's not like they're putting a headquarters in. What? How can we build a city of the future? What are the construction technologies, the modularity? What are the kinds of real estate technologies? What are the kinds of uh, mobility technologies? How can? What are the right densities? How do we do that? How do we achieve mobility? So you would have a laboratory in Toronto that could build a cluster. Just one more thought. I can't help but think that Amazon's decision to split this has a lot to do with looking at what's happening in Toronto. Hmm. Look, they see the public issues that Sidewalk Labs is. Now, remember, Sidewalk Labs didn't take any public incentives. It's put money into community uh, engagement. It's saying run by a former deputy mayor of the biggest city in North America who built New York City, Hudson Yards, and, and Cornell Tech. That person who's a city builder, and, and that's running into trouble, and there's been a community backlash. If I'm Amazon and I'm looking at that, I say, well, let me split my headquarters. 
if, if people in New York start to give me trouble, I can say I'm moving it to Washington. <laughs> people of Washington start to create a backlash. I can say New York. I can't help but think that that strategy of splitting the headquarters has something to do with watching our reaction to our own big tech project. L one last thought. This isn't over. I have long said to my colleagues in Toronto, we're in for something. I think now that we've got head HQ 2 and 3, let's wait for HQ 4, 5, and 6. I think Miami is in line for our Latin Americans headquarters. I think Toronto is in line for something. I don't know what it is. I think Pittsburgh, when you look at the 20 cities, you can't make sense of that list until you look at it this way. Pittsburgh is going to be an R&D hub. Uh, Boston's probably going to get some R&D activity. Uh, Pitt, uh, Indianapolis or Columbus are probably going to become logistics and, and warehousing and distribution high-level facilities. So I think this isn't done. Amazon is going to roll out. Look, to, to, to finalize this, I think high-tech companies located in your city is a good thing provided this. Provided you don't give them public handouts and you don't allow them to bankrupt you, and provided you can reach a deal with them, an accommodation with them, which says they are partners in inclusion. So for those cities with Amazon or for us with Sidewalk Labs, we have to say, look, will you partner with us on mobility? Will you partner with us on affordable housing? Will you partner with us on better jobs? That's the way to do it, to build community partnerships, not government handouts, with these companies and make them part of an inclusive prosperity shift. <laughs> Well, this has been a really fascinating discussion for this early stage of the day. Uh, lots to think about. And um, this has been an absolute honor to meet you and sit down with you um, to talk about Toronto and, and cities like it. So on behalf of ULI Toronto and all of our listeners, thanks so much for your time. It's been really, really great. Thank you. It's a pleasure being with you. Okay. Thank you.